Now, uh, can we get into Mark together? Is that cool? I will shave off some time so that we can honor the time, but this is a good one. Uh, turn with me to Mark chapter 10, verse 32 through 30, uh, 45. Mark chapter 10, verse 32 through 45. And this is a long one. I'll, I'll read the text as we go through the sermon, but you can just put your thumb there. Let me just pray for us today. God, once again, for the hundredth time, we come before you with your word open, expectant, and regardless of the person reading or preaching the word, we are so thankful that your word speaks and your spirit speaks and we open it looking for bread and for water for our souls and not only for us individually but for us as a church that by the power of the Holy Spirit through the words spoken as Mark tells a story about the Messiah who breaks in on the scene in a situation we like to call Christmas. You would break in on the scene right now in this moment and you would give us water for today. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes things don't turn out the way you expect. I don't think I've told this story before, but I've told so many stories at this point that I can never be sure. But I don't think I told this one. It was Easter. I think it was 2012. It might have been 2012 or 2014. And we were still tethered uh, to the Carpinteria campus and the Ventura campus as one church in three locations. And for Easter, we met at the City College outside. This was our second time there, and I was the worship pastor at the time, and I was very excited for a lot of uh, reasons that I probably shouldn't have been, but I was very excited because I had a big band, and we were expecting thousands of people to show up in that little amphitheater, and uh, I just really liked music, and I had been working for six months to build up this band, and we had a huge band. It was like 10, 12 people alone in the band, but we also had this giant choir made up of people in the church, and we had a string section. There were violins and cellos, and we had a brass section. There were trumpets and all sorts of things that I don't even know how to pronounce, and it was just so much fun, and we practiced that Saturday as we set up, we prayed. I went to bed with visions of splendor and woke up to a lot of rain that day. And everybody else was like, it's, you know, the Lord is still here. The Lord will have his way. People will get saved. And I'm over here just complaining. I didn't care about any of that stuff. I was like, I had a plan. I had an awesome band, and this is going to be amazing, and we we're going to blow the roof off, and now I can't. And we had probably like, I don't know, there must have been 60 people on the stage. I would built this incredible thing. And that Sunday morning in the rain, we had to shut off the electronics because of obvious reasons, and it ended up being Dominic Bally playing a guitar and me with an egg shaker leaning over his shoulder trying to shake the egg into the microphone that was also on his guitar. It was rain, just standing in a puddle, trying not to get electrocuted. 
thinking to myself, this isn't what I expected. It was really fun. I mean, people still got saved and they worshiped, but I was just super bitter (laughs) because life didn't turn out the way I wanted it to turn out. Have you ever experienced that in your own way? If you have, turn to someone next to you and say, it wasn't what I expected. This isn't what we expected. We see an example of this in Mark chapter 10, verse 32 through 34, and it says they were on the road, speaking of the disciples and probably the crowd with the disciples, and they were going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were also afraid, and taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, look guys, We're going to go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise, period. This isn't what the disciples were expecting either. (laughs) Jesus is explaining, like, put yourself in the shoes of a Peter, who carries a sword with them, man. He's a religious zealot. And his whole makeup, and not only him, but James and John, nicknamed the Sons of Thunder, who we're about to see in the next verse, they were violent people. They were looking for an overthrow, and the guy that they had pegged their entire hope and life on, that they left their careers and family to follow, for this ultimate reason, this ultimate hope of upseating Rome, just tells them his long-term plan. (laughs) I'm gonna get arrested, I'm gonna get beat up, I'm gonna get killed, and then three days later I'll rise. This is not what they expected. Now I love that in the middle of this, we're told that the crowd was both amazed and afraid. Most people don't know. There's a couple ways you could construe this. There might be a big crowd that's amazed and then the disciples that are afraid or maybe they're all just, maybe they started amazed and then they're afraid or maybe they're experiencing both emotions at the same time. I don't know. What we do know is there's some fear going on. Maybe it was because of the last thing that Jesus said to them about how hard it is to get into the kingdom of God for a wealthy person. Maybe it's something else, but the disciples are experiencing a degree of fear, and I love this because it's precisely in the midst of their fear that God speaks to them. I think this is something worth taking to the bank for you and for me because fear is a huge component of some of our lives. And if you're like me, you grow up thinking that whenever I'm afraid and anxious or doubtful, something is wrong with me and perhaps God is distant. But we see in the life of the disciples, God is actually speaking to them in the midst of their anxiety. Even when you're afraid and nothing is turning out the way that you thought, even when your expectations aren't being met and you're disappointed and disillusioned and nothing is working out the way that you were hoping. We see in this example that God is actually still working behind the scenes. Look at this. 
And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And in that moment, he takes the 12 again and lays out his long-term plan. Their fear actually doesn't change a single thing about what God intends to do. And he uses that moment of weakness to speak to them. You might be disillusioned today. You might be afraid. You might have some doubts. You might be going through some stuff. And those feelings are deeply valid. It's our body's way of telling us you're going through a lot of stuff. And yet God, in his kindness, doesn't just speak to us when we're happy. He's there like he is with the disciples. He's there today by his spirit reaching out to you to remind you that he's still working and he's still present and he's still moving even when it doesn't look like it. The problem isn't whether God is working or present. The problem is usually, at least for me, sometimes I'm too disappointed to notice. My long-term plan, my expectations, the thing that's like right here and my myopic vision two feet in front of me is so disappointing and disillusioning that all I can think about is my plan and I miss or end up missing this big thing that God is doing underneath the surface and behind the scenes. This is not what we expected. And this tends to happen because, let's just be honest, we've got preset expectations. We have that with each other. We have that with ourselves. Sometimes we have it with God. And we see this with the disciples too. Exhibit A, James and John. Look at verse 35. James and John. Now, before I read this, I just want to remind you that this is right after Jesus and his transparent vulnerability just told his disciples, I'm going to die. Okay? James and John, the son of Zebedee, come up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one on your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. That's awesome. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Now, let me kind of parse this passage for us today. Right after Jesus shares with them, uh, what I remember several weeks ago, uh, Pastor Stephen share, uh, uh, shared as the path to greatness which is not through control or uh, uh, greed, but through servanthood, after Jesus begins to speak about how he is going to give his life, the sons of thunder come up and they're like, they still don't get it. They still approach him with this backwards view of power. And they straight up ask him, we want you to do whatever we want. Okay, what is it, James and John? They said, we want to be in power when you come into your power, whenever that is, you know, Jerusalem, whatever. 
And Jesus basically corrects him. He asks him a question like, are you even ready to go through what I'm going to go through? Yes, we are. I love his response. He's like, you will go through what I go through. (laughs) You're going to suffer. But as to whether you sit at my right or left, that's not for me to grant. I love that in verse 41, the 10 heard it and they were indignant. Most scholars believe that they weren't indignant at him or mad at James and John because uh, of how immature they were, but because they they didn't get to say that first. All of the disciples are still... Uh, immersed in this backwards view of power. Where in their world, you get ahead by taking from others, by arguing, by fighting, by asserting yourself at the expense of other people. And 2,000 years later, I find myself doing the same thing. I get disappointed when my expectations aren't met because I tend to come with preset expectations. And the truth is, many of us do. None of us comes, come to Jesus free of bias or expectations. There was an author by the name of uh, Jonathan Haidt who wrote in a book called The Righteous Mind, uh, he answered this question, why, are we, why do we tend to be so divided by politics and religion? Uh, why are good people is the subtitle, so divided over politics and religion. How can you be so close to someone? And then you start talking about one thing and you feel like enemies. And his entire research has led him to, uh, to, to share, it's basically how your brain was wired. We like to think that we are rational animals, that those of us, if we just had the facts, we can think rationally about everything, And it's those other people that are less mature than us that think emotionally, as if some people are emotional and others are rational. He goes on to write, a neurologist will show you that your brain has both rational capabilities and emotion. And while many of us, or at least some of us, would like to think that we can control our emotions and only think rationally, it's actually the opposite. We reason, the way your brain was wired was to reason in support of your emotional reactions. You have stories that your emotions and heart are locked into, and you reason to support those stories. This is where we get things like confirmation bias. And where do those emotional stories come from? They come from our family of origin, things we learn from dad and mom and our siblings, They come from our experiences, the good ones and the bad ones alike, the celebrations in childhood, the trauma, the pain, the happiness. They come from our traditions, could be ethnic traditions, could be family traditions, could be church traditions, could be political traditions. And all of those things, both good and bad, come together to form your story and how you interpret the world, including this man, Jesus Christ. And it's incredibly powerful, your emotion. That's why I still have friends who think it's okay to play Christmas music before Thanksgiving, even though I sit them down every week and lay out the facts, okay? You don't do that. And they're like, well, I don't agree with you. Well, you're wrong! And on a slightly less funny note, it's why you can have somebody you've known your entire life 
and feel so divided with them when you talk about that one thing. We're storytellers. And our emotions, which God created, are powerful. And they get wrapped up in stories. And it's so powerful that we form our expectations around them. That's why discipleship to Jesus is so incredibly important. Discipleship to Jesus doesn't just mean proximity to Jesus, going where he goes. It means literally, according to Romans 12 and Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4 and 1 Peter 1, it means the putting off of the old to put on the new. Old patterns, old behaviors, old expectations, old biases, old beliefs that are deeply and firmly rooted in our heart. Jesus calls us not just to follow him in proximity, but to put off the old way of thinking and put on the new. And that's hard, right? I imagine it was pretty easy for Peter to just walk around Galilee and follow Jesus. Much hard to put aside certain, certain things that he grew up with his entire life. For us, it means at the very least learning how to change our expectations. Some of our expectations are going to be good. Some of them are going to be tethered to our sin, to our personal agendas, to our traditions, experiences, family, hurt, pain, trauma, loves. And God and our discipleship to Jesus will maintain some of them because they are beautiful and good. And others, he will call us to leave in place of others, in place of better expectations. And this is what Jesus does for you and I. Jesus transforms our expectations. Look at how he does this with his disciples. Verse 42, Jesus called them to him. It always starts there, doesn't it? Jesus calls them to him. And said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. There it is right there. I want you to remember that line for a long time. This is how Jesus shapes his church. A church that is a community of spirit-filled believers, men, women, and children who are not like the world. And how? Because we all started there. It comes from Jesus saying, I know that you see this, but it shall not be so among you. And little by little, in community, by the power of the Holy Spirit, with the scriptures open together, we learn what to maintain, what to keep, what to preserve, and what to put aside. What was it for them? You know, he said, that normal authorities in Greece and in Rome like to lord their power and use their power as leverage over those who are not as powerful as them, but it's not going to be the same with us. We're not like that. Here, in my economy, in my kingdom, whoever wants to be great 
among you must be your servant. Here, real power and real authority comes through servanthood. Look at the next line. Whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. Can you imagine how hard that word would have hit? An old, poor, ruddy, Galilean man like Peter, who's so angry, being from rural Galilee, getting the leftovers of Rome and even his own people that he was willing to pack a sword to do something about it. Can you imagine how that would have jarred him to be said, hey, I know that you've learned real power from Rome a certain way, but here I want you to be a slave, as a slave to the rest of your people. And then Jesus says in verse 45, this is our last verse, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. In one sentence, we get Christmas and Easter. The Son of Man came, there's Christmas, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life, there's Easter, as a ransom for many. In other words, Jesus is also not like the Roman authorities. Not only does he, he's not like those people that tell us what to do, but doesn't follow it. He says, this is the way we're going to live as disciples to me, as a new community in Christ. And let me go first. I'm going to show you what servanthood looks like. I'm going to die. It's hard to read through this without seeing how powerful and upsetting these words from Jesus would have been to a John or James or a Peter. They had grown up their whole life with a set of stories, emotional stories and scripts of what true power looked like. Power grabs, greed, violent assertions, these were okay. In fact, for Peter, this was actually embedded into his religion as a zealot. I wanna make things even more complicated. How many of us throughout our lives have had those moments where we were thinking that we were doing the Lord's work? We thought we were doing the Christian thing only to find that we were merely just repeating patterns and toxic habits that we learned from our family or our workplace. And yet we hear now from Jesus, it shall not be so among you. This is what discipleship to Jesus Christ looks like. And when Jesus transforms your expectations, a powerful thing happens. He makes space in our lives for the new thing that God wants to do in them. Remember that this is sometimes a problem. This is my problem. I often miss the thing that God wants to do right in front of me because I'm so locked up into what I want him to do for me. And I wonder, I don't wonder, I know, from my conversations with many of you, that some of you are tired and you're coasting along spiritually, dreary, because of a very difficult last two years. 
And when we talk about expectations, you're like, I've got some and they're weathered. Maybe you would even describe your expectations as seared, maybe even jaded. You might feel like the nation of Israel during the time of Isaiah when they were in an exile to Babylon. Century after century, day after day, year after year, stripped of their identity with the feeling that God was distant from them, nothing making sense, nothing going the way that they wanted, asking, Lord, where are you? Maybe you're saying the same thing. And I want you to hear the same thing that they heard in exile when God spoke to them, as I believe he would speak to you. Isaiah 43, verse 18, the Lord says, forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Don't you perceive it? Do you, do you see it? I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. I love that in the middle of exile in Babylon and maybe one of the worst seasons of Israel's life, God says, I'm doing a new thing in your midst. But he also has to say in that promise, do you not perceive it? Because we get so inundated with our own stories that we can easily fail to see the thing that God is doing right in front of us. And this is God saying, I am doing a new thing. Look up. Jesus recalibrates our vision of the good life, of his kingdom. But what we see in this passage is Jesus tells his disciples that he's got to go to the cross to do it. Is that sometimes in order for us to experience and to taste that vision of the good life, we have to let some of our expectations die. Not all of them, certainly not the good and right ones, but some of them. It's a period and a season of letting go, surrendering what we thought was good in order to taste something that God thinks is great. And for that to really sink in, not only to an individual person, but also into a church community, Christ Jesus does the work of discipling people by recalibrating the things that they see and the things that they expect. That's why we do this on a Sunday morning. Week after week, we gather together after being immersed in the world's story and even our own to reshape the story that drives us into Monday. That's why we have home groups. That's why we meet in each other's homes and we break bread is to recalibrate and reshape that story, to restory ourselves to the true story of God's kingdom. That's why we sing songs. You ever wondered that? We sing stories about God's kingdom coming through Jesus Christ. We're reshaped by community, by scripture, and by communion. 
You ever wondered why Jesus Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords, gave us as a reminder of his kingdom food? <laughs> look at all the powerful people throughout history and look at the symbolism that they left us. Flags symbolizing their power, swords, weapons. Jesus gives us bread and a cup. Why? I want to ask uh, Robert and Joseph to come up here as we sing. And I want to close by telling you why. Food is a visceral reminder of someone or something. That's it. Does anyone here know what poncet is? Poncet is a noodle. It's a Filipino noodle. It's a lot of very, there's a lot of different Asian noodles, rice noodles and egg noodles and pho, ramen. I love them all. But poncet is my favorite. Poncet is a Filipino noodle. It's really thin like angel hair pasta. And it's translucent so you could see everything in the bowl. Not only does it taste good, but for me, every time I smell it, every time I eat it, I vividly remember certain things about my grandmother. I remember the way she used to kiss me. I remember that weird bubble wrap that she always put on the carpet. And I remember the smell of those crocheted blankets that she drape over my shoulders. I can't eat Filipino food without a visceral reminder of my grandma. Food, the taste and the smell is one of the most powerful effects on your emotion, which perhaps is why Jesus when he put together a group of people that he thought would change the world, he said, grabbed a loaf of bread and he grabbed a cup and he passed it around the table and he said, breaking the bread and passing the cup, he said, do this to remember me. Because it's hard to remember sometimes, right? And so Jesus, the great warrior, the great victor, the king of kings and lord of lords who could have reminded us in a variety of ways. He takes a meal and he tells his disciples to sit down around the table together, breaks a loaf and he passes the cup and he says, do this to remember me. So let's remember. And as we remember, let's recalibrate our stories. Even though they might be riddled with baggage, and questions and doubts, let's once again jump into that restoring of the church of God to a story we know matters. Let's take that bread, which is right over there, right over there and outside with the rest of our church in the lot and at home, wherever you're watching. And let's tell ourselves and perhaps each other a better story. Heavenly Father, May you minister to us today in accordance with your word and your will to stir our hearts up for you once again. 
In Jesus' name.